Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the It's the 22nd Century, Do You Know Where Your Children Are? episode of the podcast that brings you interviews with the authors of today's most compelling science fiction. With me today is Mike Chen, whose debut novel, Here and Now and Then, tells the story of a man torn not only between two families, but two different centuries. I'm delighted that Mike is with me now via Skype from his home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to the pod, Mike. Thank you for having me. Well, your book, and I know it's your first, it just came out at the end of January, so I was wondering how you're feeling right now that it's just a few days old. It's been a very strange <laughs> past week or so. Um, I, I tried to stay you know, very zen about the whole thing, but then... Like the the mon- it was re- it released on Tuesday, and so Monday night I was taking out the garbage, and then it just hit me that my book was coming out, and I kind of had a panic attack. Um, and then I had a, a work thing blow up that evening, so I was able to focus on that until the actual launch happened. And then uh, I took the day off of work that's from the day job, and I just kind of stayed on social media all day and. It was nice seeing people saying really nice things. And some people even said that they, they sat down and they just read it and like starting in the morning. They got through it in one day and were really happy with it. So um, my friend Pun Shepard, who was on this podcast for the Book of M, she warned me about how uh, you would feel kind of like an out-of-body experience for, for like a week or so. And I think that was the best description that anyone gave to me because it really felt like I was experiencing it, but not really experiencing it. And then just maybe like two or three days ago, it kind of like re-entered reality. Like I was at work doing work things, but clearly screwing up and not really realizing it. You know, like everything was just a little bit off, but I think I'm back to being me now. I'm glad you've come back down to earth for this episode. Yeah, I can think again. The first few pages of Here and Now and Then set up your protagonist, Kin Stewart, as a secret agent from the year 2142 who works for something called the Temporal Corruption Bureau. And when we first meet him, he's he's in mortal combat with a criminal who's been using time travel to steal money and Kin nearly gets killed, and then in the next chapter, everything's changed. He is basically a regular suburban guy from the 1990s with a family and a regular job. I was wondering if you could tell listeners what happened, how Kin went from being a time-traveling secret agent from the future to basically a regular Joe circa the 1990s. So the the original draft of this the uh, um the one that the version that sold actually no but it was like the draft right before it it started actually in chapter 1 which is Ken in his garage as the 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 beacon to the future's accidentally activated kickstarting off the whole adventure and I had uh, um received some uh, revision feedback 
during the acquisition process about like, well, we would really love to see like the moment Ken realizes he's actually stuck, stuck. Like what, what if we can go back, you know, those 14 years or so. So that's where the, the prologue actually comes in where you see the aftermath of this, this uh, fight he has with this criminal. So in between there, his memories are gradually going away. And I guess it's a minor spoiler to say that you discovered through like the suit, the science of that world that like the brain can't sustain living in two lifetimes at the same time without these, these injections that the agents use to, to support their, um, their physiology as they travel through time. So without that, he's basically losing his memory of the future as he's living in, you know, the tw- early 21st century as it would be now. So as you go through the first act, you see the several flashback points of him, like critical moments where he's starting to become acclimated to living in our world, and then the decisions he makes to actually go all into that. And they all kind of mirror moments as, uh, um, as he is reapproached from the future. And so, as you've said, he has a, a sensor of some kind that is damaged when he is on his original mission. And so because it's damaged, he ends up stuck in our time for 18 years. Yes. And then through, through just the, you know, one of those happenstance accidents, it gets, it's like you have a flashlight or something that has like the battery has like one little bit of, of juice left in it. And if you bunk it, you know, just the right way, the contacts hit just to get that last little bit of power out of it. That's, that's basically what happens there. Um, and it does create a, a, a little bit of a paradox in there. I, my editor and I went through a list of questions that like people always ask about time travel stories to you know, regarding paradoxes and cause and effect. And so we did try to make sure that that was addressed in here, even though it's, it's really just a few lines of exposition, but just to seal off that, those sorts of questions. What is the paradox and how do you address it? The, the, the grandfather paradox is the theory that a time traveler could not go back into the past to murder his grandfather because then he would himself would never be born. It's a cause and effect type of thing. And so what's going on here is that the timeline is like, it it was always destined to happen this way where the beacon is reactivated because without it, then TCB couldn't come back and initiate all the, like the entire sequence of things that happened. It's like, uh, once you are on a linear timeline, like everything that happens has to stay that way. And the TCB, the, the, the Temporal Corruption Bureau, they have very strict rules. So, so from the Temporal Corruption Bureau, from TCB, from their perspective, they're all about preventing paradoxes. So since because Ken has activated the sensor in the year 2014 by accident, that means that from the TCB's perspective, it has always happened. They can't go back and change that because that would create a paradox. So it actually has to play out very linearly. There's, there's a line in there, um, minor spoiler, but uh, there's a line in there where Ken actually asks the TCB, like, if I had never activated this, when would you guys have come? And they said, well, we would have detected you as missing and we would have come back during 1996, two weeks after your initial operation ended. But because of the, the, the time perspective from them in the future where everything is just instantaneous changes, it always plays out this way. So uh, the, the nice thing about that is that um, it, it does kind of limit the number of questions that the reader can ask when you establish these rules up front. So it, it never gets into the you know, like the, when I first watched the Terminator, the first question is like, 
why can't they just keep going back and trying to kill John Connor over and over? So by establishing these types of rules and saying there's an agency to enforce that, you kind of eliminate that so you can sink into the story without thinking about those things. That's always one of the challenges of writing a time travel story is establishing rules that are consistent for something that, as you say, is inherently or potentially inherently paradoxical. When you watch Doctor Who, they just kind of hand wave it away as like, oh, time can always be rewritten and, you know, we're always playing with it. And then you have other hard science fiction where it's like very strict rules. For this story, you know, I, I always knew that the, the time travel element of it, like it, it carries the plot forward, but it's not central to, to you know, the reader experience. It's really about the impact of time on relationships. And so I don't want to get bogged down in can they, can't they type of rules. But at the same time, I didn't want it to be just kind of like this nebulous thing that's not explained like in... Um, like in The Time Traveler's Wife, where it's like, it works for that particular story, but I wanted something a little bit more based in science. Just to be clear, in case listeners got turned away from the plot as we discussed the intricacies and the rules of time travel in your story, Kin essentially is sent back to do his mission, but because his sensor breaks and doesn't reactivate for another 18 years or so, uh, he ends up living in our time for 18 years. But to his colleagues in the future, it's just a blip. They just see, up oh, the sensor disappeared, up oh, it reappeared, and voila, 18 years later, they come back to retrieve him. But as you said, he's, he's suffered memory loss during that time. And so how does he manage in the current epic, you know, when he's living among us, to live his life? I mean, he, he actually goes on and does quite a few things that the Temporal Corruption Bureau would find to be a big no-no. So they talk a lot in the story about protocols for agents, and one of them is basically a non-interference one, where like if you, when any era that you visit in, they even talk about how like if, if you have to go out into a public place, you walk like on the side of the street that has the least amount of people, you know, you go into a store only when there are like no customers in there. And it's all about preventing any sort of interference with people's paths. Like even if you set them off by like five seconds or so, that could lead them to like a car accident later in the day. That's that sort of thing. Uh, so Kim clearly breaks that rule when he realizes that uh, help is not coming and he has to do something. He just decides to live his life. And that ultimately leads to, you know, his wife and daughter, who you meet in the first chapter, who, um, you know, his wife obviously would have had a completely different life and his daughter would not have even existed. So she is the ultimate anomaly with that. So uh, those are choices that he made, which probably don't make him the best employee for the agency. But I think very human choices and very understandable about not wanting to live a life in isolation when you're basically out of choices. And you've also set it up that because he loses his memory, it's almost like he is twice a victim. He's both abandoned and he basically suffers a, almost a physical trauma where he, he doesn't remember the details of his life from before. And he goes around and he tells everyone that he's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And it, it sort of, he, he thinks of it as a lie, but... As I was reading it, I was thinking that actually, no, it seems very true. It seems like he has suffered a, a real trauma. 
Yeah, and I, I think like you know, he uses it in, in the story as basically a, you know a cover for something else that he he can't explain. But I tried to research how people cope with PTSD. You know, what are triggers for it? I thought it was important to have some level of understanding of what maybe like you know police officers or soldiers or whoever like people who have been in that sort of high stakes life and death circumstances like how would they react to reintegrating into like a society because that's essentially what he's doing even though you know he's using it as a cover story but he has been in a life and death situation been abandoned and then forced to reintegrate into a society that feels foreign to him. So it, it, I thought that was really important to try to get right. And uh, I actually had my agent's wife is a retired soldier. And so he, he talked about over with her when he was reviewing the manuscript and he felt that I did it justice. So that was very important. You really do a number on Ken because then when he is ultimately rescued, it really precipitates this horrible, painful separation where he is required to abandon the family he's created and reintegrate into the life he left behind in in the 2140s. And as far as the people in the 2140s are concerned, he was just gone a few weeks, but he's lived 18 years of his life. So it's almost like another trauma and requires him to do a lot of lying. And I just wonder how taxing that must have been on his psyche and and what was that like for you to have to create this character who has to suffer so much and is required to deceive people he ostensibly loves something that i'm constantly fascinated with is just the psychology between time and relationships so like if you have say someone that you knew in college some people when you go back and see them after 10 years or so you fall back into your old patterns and it feels like you never left. And then there are other people who maybe you did study abroad with them and you were in this like really extreme circumstance. And then like when you come back into like real life and like, you know, you're back into your other friends and other things like that, you try to hang out with that person. It feels a little bit off. You know, there's always like, I always found that sort of, um, the way that time and distance can affect relationships versus how good they can feel in the moment. I always found that to be interesting. So Ken as a character, I get to play with that in, in multiple ways, you know, but first with um, in the first act when TCB reappears and he's with his wife and daughter, and then um, when he's forced back into the future and he has to reintegrate there and everyone's just kind of like assuming that he's been gone a few weeks. There's a cover story for how he looks aged a little bit so you can with the physicality of that not really being that important of a plot point due to his cover story you really get into the emotions of that and so you can see how he tries to reestablish friendships how he tries to reestablish a relationship with this fiance that he feels he doesn't even know anymore and then their life you know the life that they were building together no longer seems relevant so i think there's a lot of space there to play with the the emotional impact and the stakes of of how someone has to deal with that. And, you know, that's where I think a lot of the drama comes from. Yeah. And there's another twist that he has to cope with when he arrives in 2142. For him, it's this very fresh and painful separation. But then you realize, wait, his wife and daughter have long been dead now. Like it's so far in the past. So it's a bit of a paradox isn't the right word, but how strange that must be to experience this the immediacy of this loss and then yet 
linearly for it to be this ancient, you know, the people who suffered are, are long dead and gone. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's the beauty of science fiction is you can play with that sort of fantastical element where, like, you know, obviously none of us are going to quite experience something like that. But I, to me, it's almost like, a, um, you know, if you, if you look back at, like, if you took journals or I guess now with social media, you know, where you can look back on things and you, if you meet someone new, and you look at their social media and you can basically learn about their entire life. And, you know, just in one sitting by flipping through old photos and posts and these real definitive snapshots of, of who they were and what their thoughts were. Or if you go back and revisit your old journals from like, if you were in high school or college or whatever. So it, it's that same kind of feeling that I wanted to, to convey about like, you know, it's now can it has to deal with the fact that like, he, he can basically just like read up about the past in like a paragraph, but that's not really living it. It's not really understanding what happened to the people back there and how their emotions played out after this trauma of separation. So that, that was actually, that was a lot of fun to write. There was a lot of room to, to play with, with the connection between the, the key players there and, and how they reacted to that sort of thing. But yeah, it, it all comes down to the, uh, again, the theme of like the re- impact of time on relationships, both in, you know, a very real world sense and then also in a fantastical science fiction setting. It also underscored for me the power of guilt because the incident that he feels so bad about is is centuries old now, but his guilt is very much alive and it's sort of a, a metaphor for how the guilt we might carry around with us for something we've done, you know, stays with us. Uh, it exists inside us. So as long as we're alive, it can, it can persist. Yeah. I think <laughs> in a way, this book is like a, a giant advocate for everyone to go get therapy and you know, resolve yourself of guilt. Otherwise you're just going to carry it forever. One of the, the real difficult things that he has to deal with is when he is thrust back into the future he has no one that he can talk to about this. And and I thought it was really important to show this like growing isolation where he doesn't fit in and he can't be honest with anyone, not even the people that he's supposed to be closest to because he works for a top secret agency and the real world out there, even in 2142 does not know that time travel exists. It's all supposed to be top secret. So he's got cover stories. No one knows about the true past. The flip side to that is when, the important people in his life, when they discover this, then they have the trauma of of thinking that like this person that they cared about has lived basically a third of his life in a completely different way with completely different people. So that was definitely like the the, the driver for for a lot of like the very highs and lows of the emotional stakes of this story. The story depends at a critical juncture on Kin being able to communicate with the daughter he left behind, Miranda. And I imagine it was a challenge trying to figure out the best way for him to do that and to bridge communication over those hundred plus years. I wondered what kind of thinking went into that for you. There was there are a few different ways that I tried to do this. And I realized that it was important to create a very streamlined method from a storytelling perspective. Otherwise, like if, if there was one version of this where he stole a time machine and was like jumping back every few months to like, you know, kind of 
quietly intercept her life. And to set that up logistically was a lot of, he goes here, he does this, he's hiding here. And like, that just was problematic from the storytelling perspective. So then I was thinking about like the science that we've built into this world. And TCB is all about, you know, they're really monitoring for like physical changes in the timeline. You know, someone was supposed to turn left, but they wound up turning right, you know, and the, the ripple effect of what that caused. And the idea came that if you could send an email or view the web or anything where it's just, you know, it's electrons floating through, through communication signals, it, it would not slow anyone down. It would not cause anyone to deviate course. It's, you know, it's so benign. So the, the idea of having it through email, like it made sense to me from a fictional science perspective and from a storytelling perspective, it really zipped things along and kept the, um, the focus on the emotions involved with communication over such a span rather than the logistics of how are they going to do it. So in the end, email ends up being the best way that Kin finds to communicate with Miranda. And once again, he has the advantage because he can send email after email and Miranda experiences it as coming once a day or once a week. But Kin can literally sit there and zip those emails to different points in time and get a lot of correspondence and cover a lot of ground in a very short period of time from the future. Yeah, and um, one of the the motifs that I was playing with was, you know, this is almost like a, a drug for Ken who, who is feeling isolated and, you know, out of touch with the people around him. And he, he has this method of connecting to his past rather than really like looking to people for his future. Um, and so he, you know, he abuses it. And if you think about the parallel timelines here of, uh, his daughter, like you were saying, is experiencing things over like days, weeks, months. And for him, he's like hitting a button with like, you know, us talking on Google chat these days or something like that. And for him to like constantly go back into this, he has to be called out by like some of the, you know, the few people that he can be somewhat honest with where they basically say that like, you know, this is, this is something that has a finite limit. You keep abusing this and eventually her life is going to catch up and run out. Like you can't do that unless you want her just to be like this fleeting book that you read in your life and then it's done. You can't go back to it. You know, that that's one of those interesting human impulse things that the story gets to play with because I totally understand like the temptation to, to do something like that when, when it's something that you care about as much as a child and you're basically given the entirety of their, their lifespan to, to reach out and, and play with it. It's very hard to say no, especially if you're feeling in an isolated situation. Uh, so it was important for him to, to really battle with the, the temptation of doing that. And also for other people to call him out and say, like, this is not, you're not doing that for her. You're doing that for you. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think some of the, rev the reviews that I have seen, um, you know, people have called Ken a flawed, but very human and very believable character. And I think that's probably the biggest compliment that I can receive because we don't necessarily need to root for people because they do everything right, but because we believe in what they're doing, even when, when it's flawed. Um, and hopefully it seems like that I've, you know, people have been taking, taking Kim that way. So that's, that's been very gratifying to hear. You're reminding me of a thought I had recently 
my father died not that long ago. And I was thinking how I'll never see my son as a very old man. And, you know, you raise a child and you know them so well from when they're very little. And there's something very poignant to think about this, this absolute knowledge that we started with. It starts to slip away as they naturally gain independence and healthily gain independence. But then it ultimately completely slips away when, when we die and they hopefully go on and thrive to a ripe old age. And that's something we never get to see. But, but Kin, as you say, it is almost like a video game. He's, he's living past her, way past her, and he can just click through her life if he chooses to, which would be, I can imagine, very tempting. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's you know, time travel stories tend to be epic. They tend to be really about like, you know, let's kill Hitler or let's save John Connor from the Terminator. You have those types of things where it's like world changing events. And it was my goal to not make this one of those to like have the highest of stakes for the main character emotionally, but really in the the scheme of things, something that doesn't even really matter. And, and they talk about that with um, TCB, you know, where they talk about, um, even though Miranda's an anomaly, you know, the, the human element of like, you can't just go kill her after she's existed. Um, like that's just cruel. Uh, and, but the line in there that says something like, well, you know, if she doesn't murder a president or overthrow a government, then, you know, she'll just kind of absorb back into the timeline. And that was really important for me to try to establish that these stakes are not end of the world cataclysmic, you know, um, type of, type of uh, uh, stake it's really all about the the human element of it um because i mean for me as a writer i don't think like i've always said like i don't i love space opera but i don't think i could write space opera you know i love epic stories but i, I don't think i have the the chops to write like the kind of action that it takes so for me it's always going to be very very character driven and the stakes need to be very intimate well you have a daughter right i know she's much younger than miranda in her prime i mean we see miranda in various phases of her life actually but i just wonder was your daughter on your mind as you thought about how kin felt about his daughter so it, it was interesting because when when i first started drafting the story um, like my, my wife and I were kind of like the, you know, among our friends, we were the couple that like, we, they probably thought we weren't going to have kids. Um, like even in my twenties, I had talked about how like, you know, that, that seems very difficult to, to raise children. I didn't know if I wanted that. And then as we got to know some of our friends' kids and we were like, wow, they're, they're really lovely little people. And, you know, we we're kind of already used to nurturing, uh, you know, other creatures under responsibility because we we're constantly involved in animal rescue and, and we always have, we've always had a lot of animals in, in our house. And so it began to feel natural. And so um, the concept of this story came like right around the time that my wife and I had started talking like realistically, like, are we going to do this? Are we going to really try and give it a go? And then after she was born, I was in like the revising phase. I, I signed with uh, my agent when she was, I think, 10 months or 11 months, something like that. And then we did some revisions there. And then we did more revisions when we were subbing the story out to editors. So the, the new experiences and, you know, the, the way that, you know, when, when you become a parent, the world really shifts and 
you think you really, I mean, if, hopefully if you're a good parent, you really comprehend selflessness for in a way that you've was just previously impossible. And I think that really did feed into the story, even though the, the basic structure of the story had existed even before my wife was pregnant. But uh, I was able, I think, to probably color in a lot of the emotions in a more realistic level after I had experienced it myself. This is your first book. So what's the publication story? I, I saw some tweets that made it sound like each phase has its own story, finding the agent, and then that it took a while before a publisher picked it up. So I wonder if you could share a little bit about some of the challenges you encountered and how you overcame them. Sure, yeah. So I had first really started, like I took creative writing in, in college and I played around with it a little bit after college, but I focused mostly on on freelance journalism. So if you if you search for for me on the internet archives, like you'll see a lot of articles covering the NHL for various sports media websites. And then I made a conscious shift to try to focus more on fiction, uh, I think around 2011 or 2012. Like I had started like my first terrible, terrible manuscript, like full length novel uh, was me basically trying to write high fidelity. You know, that book is never going to see the light of day. Um, And then after that, I started to really hone my craft. Um, And then around 2011, 2012, I decided that I wanted to try to take character stories that I love, but then use the science fiction elements that I've grown up and have, have always been a huge part of my life. Not knowing that whether or not there was actually a market out there, I just talking with a critique partner friend of, you know, I'm just going to do this because it feels right. And so the first manuscript that I tried to do that with, I did not get an agent with it, but I got pretty far with them. Like I actually like had a lot of requests and I knew there was something not quite there with that manuscript, but it was definitely a big step in the right direction. Um, and then with this manuscript, um, I, I was fortunate enough that I was only submitting to agents for, I think, four or five months, which is pretty short for that process. It seemed to gain a lot of traction right away. The problem after I had signed with my agent was then we went on submission to editors. And that itself was a, a real journey because I said before how I can't write space opera and I don't think I, I want to. A lot of the science fiction imprints were, they just basically said this isn't sci-fi enough for us. Uh, we also subbed out to literary presses and the literary presses said like this, this has too much sci-fi in it. We We don't know what to do with it. And my agent I was ready to throw in the towel and shelf this and, you know, try to move on to the next project. Um, I had picked the 18 month mark for that. And my agent said that the the big difference between this book and a lot of other books on submission is that the creative people loved it. Like we were getting a lot of opportunities with the editorial teams who were taking it to their acquisition meeting saying, we want to buy this. And it was always the business people who said like, we don't know how to market this. So my agent said, uh, asked for like one more round because he had just talked with some new editors that he thought this would be a really good fit for. And that's actually how we found Mirror Books was that particular round. Um, and Mirror Books is um, the commercial imprint of Harlequin, which is itself uh, an imprint of HarperCollins. And so Mirror, they, they publish a lot of different stuff. There's There's an epic fantasy writer on their roster. There's a lot of thrillers of different kinds, there's women's fiction, historical fiction. And I think I'm the first to like kind of veer into like this 
speculative or literary science fiction area, but I know they've actually picked up a few after me. So it's, it's nice to hear that they believe that, that there's a market for this. And I think the initial response to like, you know, we've gotten really good reviews and, you know, it's made anticipated lists heading to 2019. And as I understand it so far, they're pretty happy with sales and library outreach. So um, I think there is a market for, for people who, who love science fiction, but really want their character, want their stories to be about characters rather than fate of the galaxy type stuff. Well, that's very inspiring, both about the market and about your persistence and your agent's faith in you. <laughs> yeah, it was not easy. You know, it's funny because my agent will now say like when he if he gives like a seminar or something, he will use me as the example for perseverance. Um, and he'll tell my story. And looking back on it now, like I actually was just talking with a friend today who's she signed with an agent, I think six months ago or eight months ago. And she's just been on submission for a few months. And she, she asked me like, how did you survive this for almost two years? And I just, I told her like, it's a special type of hell that you can't really talk about because no one really talks about it. It, it was not easy. And I, I give full credit to my agent, Eric Smith of PS literary agency. He's a very, positive and upbeat person and he kept saying that like if the creative people like it then it will eventually find a home so yeah all all kudos to him because i was ready to throw in the towel and i think about if i had insisted on quitting at the 18 month mark just based on the reception so far i i don't know if like my second book would have sold i'm so it was a it's a two-book contract so the the second book is actually turned in and ready to go for January 2020. But I don't know what path that would have taken without this one. So yeah, yeah, all credit to my agent for having faith when I nearly lost it. That's a very great note to end the interview on. And I want to thank you so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm so glad that you enjoyed the book. I've been talking with Mike Chen, author of Here and Now and Then, which just came out a week ago as we record this from Mira Books and this podcast will air a few weeks from now so it might it might be a month old which is very which means it's still a little baby book a little infant book getting its its walking legs or crawling so so pick it up while it's fresh please subscribe to new books in science fiction and leave a review in the apple store your reviews help draw attention to the show and help others find us Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Visit me at robwolf.net or on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Thank you so much for listening.